as is my custom prior to elections, I want to encourage you to vote. Statistics say that about one in three believers actually vote. I don't know if that's true, but if it is, I think that's sad. We're not promoting any political party or individual people, but we are encouraging you to vote righteously. Proverbs 14, verse 34 says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We're not, <clears throat> we're concerned about moral issues. And since we have a unique relationship in this government called democracy, since we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, we the people should vote. We are to render under Caesar what is Caesar's, and in a sense we are Caesar in this country. It doesn't always work perfectly, but the people of faith should let their voice be known. Do we not pray on a regular basis, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's a prayer ultimately for the coming of Christ who has begun his kingdom in the hearts of people to rule all over the planet and that will happen. But until that day, we can do something to help fulfill those prayers, at least in a sense, and that is to make righteous decisions when they are very clear before us. So it's thoroughly consistent and appropriate for faith to vote. In fact, it is vital that we stand with biblical principles. So let me encourage you to think about the issues, to pray about the issues, and to vote righteously. If you don't know what righteousness is, I encourage you to look at Jesus and read his words and then reflect that spirit in your day-to-day -day life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have already prayed for our nation in light of this important vote that is coming up this week. And we give that into your hands. It's part of our story to live in a world where there are ups and downs politically and morally. But we are to be salt and we are to be light and now's the time for us to shine. So we pray that Lord you will work in this situation. We pray that our lives every day would adorn the gospel of God that, that is to beautify it, to accurately reflect its beauty and glory and goodness so that the world can see the wonders of Christ. Now, Lord, we pray, guide our thoughts, our hearts into our study of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all people said, amen. I did that intentionally, sorry, Carol. <clears throat> Isn't it ironic, sometimes we say nothing changes, and then at other times we say 
everything is changing. Even C.S. Lewis said, it's funny how day by day nothing changes, but when you look back, everything is different. You come into a church that you grew up in, and it wasn't your favorite setting. It was kind of old-fashioned, and you've been at other places, and you've seen other worship, and you come back to your old church, and nothing changes. It's the same. Whereas other people come back and say, nothing has changed. <laughs> it's the same. Isn't that interesting? Or you're in a church that over a period of years, a lot of things change and you feel betrayed almost. And you say, everything is changing. I think I've said both of those at one time or another in a critical fashion. Now, when we're talking about preference or even culture, go with the flow. But when you're talking about morality and truth, you and I need something that never changes. And blessed is the person who can tell the difference between what shouldn't change and what can change. I find it interesting when you think of the North Star called Polaris. Uh, Polaris, excuse me. It is interesting that that star is quite different than many of the other stars. It is unique because it is so bright and easily seen. But it's also unique because unlike all the other stars in the sky, it is in the same location every night from dusk to dawn, neither rising nor setting. I didn't know that. All I knew was that people seemed to get directions from the North Star. It's bright, but unchanging. And so we need to get our bearings from something that doesn't change. And I submit to you, Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Now we're going to read just briefly verse seven. I'm not going to make a lot of comment on it because verse seven will tie in with a couple other verses later and then we'll focus on it with a little more intention. But Hebrews 13, seven <clears throat> says this, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. By the way, that may be the most famous verse in all the book of Hebrews. And it's not just thrown in there uh, arbitrarily, although it almost seems like it is. But it isn't. Because this particular verse has a purpose in the context in which it is found. Every verse has a purpose growing from the context in which it is found. And that's why I love going through the scripture because you see that purpose unfold in a very powerful way. We were told in the previous verses that the Lord is with us so we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And upholding that confidence is the fact that the helper who is with me is the one 
who never changes. One theologian said this, this remarkable verse is intended to represent Jesus not in the abstract, timeless categories of Platonic thought. In other words, merely to focus on his transcendental, eternal nature. Although it does that, there's something even more primary than that, and it is this. To a group of people who are thinking of leaving Christ and rejecting the leaders that had talked to them, verse 7, who spoke the word of God to them and whose outcome of their life was noble, you need to remember that the message they delivered regarding Jesus is the same. Today, it hasn't changed. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The helper, the Messiah, is unchangeable. It's interesting, too, that if you would just translate this verse from the Greek, it looks like the more yellow print below the verse. Jesus Christ yesterday and today is the same forever. Again, thinking of people who may want to reject all of Christianity and to give up the messages and the examples of their leaders. Now they must reflect upon the fact that the same message that they preached about Christ is the same message today because Christ never changes and he will never change. And their hope for tomorrow is based on the timeless Christ. Yesterday's work, he died for me. Today's work, he leads me like a shepherd and guides me and helps me like a North Star. Tomorrow's work, well, he ever lives to make intercession for me and he will come again and take me to be with him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Think about that from a distance and it doesn't do much. Let that get into the craw of your soul and it will radically change your life if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this is the way that the author of the book started in chapter 1. If you were to go back to Hebrews 1, verse 10, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, of the heavens. They are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You'll roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They'll be changed, but you remain the same, and your years never change. I want to be connected to the timeless Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life forever. By the way, God doesn't change. God the Father, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, I am the Lord, I change not. We also see in the book of James that he is the father of lights in whom there is no variation, neither shadow of turning. The Bible doesn't change. Think about that. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. 
or the great portion of scripture in 1 Peter chapter one, where it says the word of God lives and abides forever. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God shall stand forever. The Father never, never changes, the Son never changes, and the word they've given to us never changes. Bank your life on the changelessness of our wonderful God. That's how we have direction in the midst of a sea of change and voices that contradict one another, often sounding very reasonable. But if they go against the scripture, they're not giving us the whole story, these individuals, nor the consequences of such decisions. It's interesting, too, that the mention of Jesus in verse 8 is following the commendation of the leaders and the criticism of false teachers, which comes up in verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. So again, at the end of the book, the author is bringing up a very common concern. He said in chapter 2, verse 1, don't drift away. In chapter three, verse 12, don't turn away. In chapter four, verse 11, don't fall away. And now he's saying, don't be carried away. Oh, I forgot one, chapter 10, don't throw away. <laughs> so easy to be moved from that which is true and right and to their peril. So he urges them not to drift, not to turn, not to fall, not to give up, or not to be carried away. Similar wording to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. We're like children often, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And God wants us stabilized on his truth. That results in peace of heart and confidence of walk. Don't be carried away by the way. Everything that is contrary to Christ is both strange and dangerous. So he's going to be talking about two paths. Think of this, verse 9, two different paths. One, your hearts are strengthened by grace. Or two, your life is ruled by dietary laws. Basically, he's referring to Judaism. He's referring to the kosher laws mentioned in the Old Testament, which the Jews followed and was part of God's plan for them, but now are following to gain benefit and favor before God. Our hearts need to be strengthened by grace, not by following rules. So you get into the New Testament. The new covenant replaces the old. And with such definitive statements 
regarding dietary laws, like you hear in Colossians chapter two, let no one regard you with food or drink. When Christ died and you died with him, you, don't, you died to the world. You don't have to submit to its rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules have to do with things that perish. They're based on human traditions. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humidity, uh, humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack value in restraining the flesh. They have no value. Now, I'm not saying that the diet that the doctor gives you, you don't have to follow because it is ungodly. I'm following Christ. I'm not following diets anymore. I'm talking about spiritual benefit, not physical benefit. Romans chapter 14, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 8, Food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we eat it and no better if we do. You've got to beware of those Christians who are so committed to the rightness of proper nourishment that they began to get on their soapbox and make it a spiritual issue. If you really love God and you're concerned about your body, then you're going to follow these dietary laws. Rubbish! It may be true physically, but it's not true spiritually. Don't make it a spiritual matter. What is a spiritual matter is that you strengthen your heart by grace. You either follow the path of human religion or you follow the path of God's amazing grace. Their souls were connected to Judaism. They were carried away by these strange ideas that spiritually they would benefit before God if they just followed a certain diet. But it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Did you see that in verse nine? It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Every day, do your grace exercises and strengthen your soul. You say, what is that? Pray. Focus on the glory of Christ and the fact that you have been saved by grace. Never get away from the glorious peace that comes from knowing that your salvation has been accomplished by God from the first to the last. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And when we rest in him, that's when peace really comes. And it will be our delight then to live our life out of gratitude to follow the one who is both Lord and Savior. The work of Christ in grace puts us in a new position, free from the law, the Mosaic regulations, and has put us in a place where we are totally, totally dependent upon him. But we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. We're anchored to the rock, fastened to the rock that cannot move, grounded 
firm and deep in the Savior's love. And when you follow that path and reject the path of human regulations, that's when freedom comes. Now in this same connection, the author in verse 10 begins to talk about the difference between Judaism and Christianity and in so doing highlights the sacrifice of Christ. So we want to think about his sacrifice, that is the sacrifice of Christ. And the first thing he mentions is that the altar is actually the sacrifice of Christ. Let me try to explain that. Verse 10, we have an altar, says the author, from which those who minister at the tabernacle's altar have no right to eat. There are two altars, two paths, two altars. And the altar that we're talking about is the sacrifice of Christ. John Owen is right when he says, Jesus, in the one sacrifice of himself, is the only altar of the church. I really think it's confusing language to talk about an altar in the front of a church. We do it all the time when we talk about weddings, come down to the altar. Sometimes we talk about it in evangelistic campaigns, come down to the altar. But the altar, the only altar in the Christian church is Christ and his sacrifice. And it's not a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. We have such a rough time separating religion from the mere physical to that which is spiritual. The physical things pass away, and true religion is of the heart. Doesn't mean that there aren't some physical things connected with what we do, but we're not dependent upon them. The altar is his sacrifice, and it's better than the old altar. It's interesting that the priests when they were offer their sacrifices, they would take the blood into the holy place on the Day of Atonement, they would. And they would sprinkle the altar with the blood, but then the priests were allowed to eat almost all of the animal sacrifices. And that's the reference here in verse 10. They had the right to eat of almost every sacrifice. But on the Day of Atonement, they did not. For the blood would be taken into the holy place and the carcasses of the animals would be taken outside the camp. And there they would be burned. It's interesting when you think about the difference of the old covenant and the new covenant. You're giving up one that is obsolete, that does not work, and is untrustworthy for something that is perfect and will last forever. Uh, Imagine yourself going into a car dealership and you say, I want to get rid of this old clunker. It's unreliable, doesn't work, Um, can't fix it. It's costing me a ton of money, I want to get rid of it. It's been a great car, I've had it for a long time, but I, I want to get a new one. So you get a new one and you replace the old with the new. But after about a week, you become very sentimental with what you lost. It's a great old car. I mean, we had such wonderful memories in that old car. And you go back to the dealership and say, I'd like a trade. I want to give this new one in for the old. 
And the dealer scratches his head. Of course, financially, it's not a good move for him. He says, I don't think that's a good idea. It's a ridiculous idea. But that's what these Jews were doing. Giving up Christ, the new and the perfect, for something that had a lot of former warm associations, but did not run and did not work. We have an altar that those who commit themselves to a human altar have no right to partake of, he says. Verse 11, the high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies of those animals are burned outside the camp. Now he makes an analogy to Jesus, and so Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. So now you have two paths and two altars and two priests. The old priests burned the carcasses outside the camp because the camp itself was holy. They're referring to the nomadic encampments of Israel as they travel from place to place. And by association, the city of Jerusalem was a holy place. And outside of the city was a common place. Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. You've got the blood of the animals compared now to the blood of Jesus. And notice it talks about the place. The place where Jesus suffered was outside the gate. If you go to Jerusalem today, there are two locations that are often mentioned as the possible locations of the crucifixion of Christ, of, of Golgotha. In that day, they both were outside the city of gate, uh, the city gates. Today, the traditional site at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is inside the gates, but it wasn't then. They both were outside. And it was a shame for Jesus to suffer outside the gate, meaning he was rejected by the religion within. It confirms that he is an outcast. And while people love a Jesus they've invented, most people, those who don't know Christ, don't love the Jesus of the Bible. They don't know him. And notice the purpose. He did it to make people holy, to make us holy. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more will that blood save us? So verse 13, here's the admonition of all of this. After all of the discussion, let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. That is a call for the people who are thinking about going back to Judaism to stay outside the camp. Go, go back into the camp of Judaism. Judaism was a safe religion at that time, to some degree, because it was approved by Rome as a legal religion. And you weren't ostracized by your own people who were Jews themselves. And so this is a call to leave the protection of Judaism and to embrace the reproach of Christ. His reproach, his dishonor, and his shame. 
This is one thing that a lot of Christians don't anticipate when they trust Christ. They long to be forgiven, and that's good. And they believe the Bible, and they embrace Christ, and well, they should. But the rest of the message is, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep this in mind, they hated me first. And if you identify with me, they will hate you because you're not of the world. And when it comes to election time and we declare a righteous decision, the world attacks us as fools, as haters of freedom. And from any angle that they can dream up of, and believe me, they're coming up with some new ones. You people shouldn't even exist. It's exactly what they said during the first century when people embraced Christ as the answer to it all. Jesus said, keep this in mind, they hated me as well. To identify with Christ is to be vilified with him and criticized with him. And we need to remember that God never promised us an easy path. When I, when I was recovering a, a while back from um, a surgery, I came across this song. And there's a gospel group, a trio of two sisters and a brother called the Martins. And I couldn't get enough of this song. It said, I never said, speaking of God, speaking to us, I never said that I would give you silver or gold or that you would never feel the fire or shiver in the cold, but I did say you'd never walk through this world alone. And I did say, don't make this world your home. I never said that friends would never turn their back on you or that the world around you wouldn't see you as a fool, but I did say, like me, you surely will be despised. And I did say my ways confound the wise. I didn't say you'd never taste the bitter kiss of death or have to walk through chilly Jordan to enter into rest. But I did say I'll be waiting right on the other side. And I did say I'll dry every tear from your eye. That's the hope of the gospel. And so when we go outside of the acceptable city and embrace the Savior, we bear his reproach. Verse 14 is, is kind of like we've studied in chapter 12. There's no enduring city here. Everything is temporal. But there is a city coming that will last forever. In a sense, we're already in that city. But in a more stricter sense, we're looking for the rest of that fulfillment to come. God's given us a down payment. We're waiting for it all to be realized, the promises. And that leads us now to our sacrifices. So we have his sacrifice. His death on the cross was the altar of mercy for us. 
He suffered outside the city, and if we follow him, we're going to endure it as well. And it's interesting, in this discussion of sacrifices, we have some sacrifices to give. Verse 15, through Jesus Christ, let us therefore continually offer to God, here's the first one, a sacrifice of praise. Pastor Doug read from Psalm 50 that talks about an offering of thanks. And that's what this really is. Our sacrifices are not material. They're not animal sacrifices. They are spiritual sacrifices. And by the way, in the Old Testament, it said, never appear before me empty-handed. In other words, anytime you came before God, you had to have a sacrifice. In the New Covenant, it's the same thing. Never be appear before me empty-handed. So I say to you today, did you bring your sacrifices? Yeah, I've got my money. Well... We'll talk about that in a moment, but how about the sacrifice of an honest heart? How about the sacrifice of a listening ear? How about the sacrifice that makes gathering together with the people of God more important than anything else on Sunday morning? That's spiritual sacrifice. And this one, the sacrifice of praise. Now understand that some of us cannot sing very well. And I understand that sometimes the songs are not very singable. And sometimes you don't know the song. And sometimes they're too fast. But I would love to see a revival of singing in this place because we realize I'm offering to God a sacrifice. Did you know that you could never offer to God a sacrifice that was lame? And some of our singing, wow, wow, but I don't have a good voice. That's not the point. The point is, are you singing from your heart with joy? Revolutionize our church. I love people lead, leading up here in worship. I hate the fact when they're the only ones singing. How can we change that? We must, because spiritual sacrifices are offering praise to God, which is offering thanks. Psalm 50, verse 14, offer thank offerings to God. 50, 23, he who sacrifices thank offerings honors me. And by the way, it says continual, not occasional. Offer to me continually the sacrifice of praise. Apparently, these Christians who had embraced Christ but did not want to be known kept it silent. They were not boldly confessing his name, the fruit of, his, of our lips, acknowledging his name, which might be another sacrifice of public witness. But we need to make sure that our singing is heartfelt and joyful. Verse 16 finishes it up. And do not forget to do good, which is the next spiritual sacrifice. Compassionate deeds. How the world will know we're Christians by our love 
And love is not silent. Love is demonstrable. Love must act. And love must do. And when we're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. It's not the result of our works, so no one can boast. For God has created us in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should be involved in them. Good works, bad, when you talk about getting saved. Good works, good, when you talk about being saved. In fact, it's a spiritual sacrifice. Are you gonna offer that up to God today? And then there is a third one, generous giving, which comes from the word share to do good and to share with others. With this, God is well pleased. Philippians 4.18, offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. You know, when the offerings would go up and the incense would burn, it was a fragrant aroma to God. And even the burning of the animals which smelled like a barbecue, that isn't half bad. But to God, it was the heart offering the sacrifice. It was an acceptable sacrifice, and it was a sweet smell to him. And that's exactly what we need to do, because by doing good and sharing with others, we're proclaiming the gospel. There was years ago, uh, reporter in Toronto who wanted to test the honesty of some car repair people in the city. So he loosened a couple wires in his car and then drove into the mechanic and said, I need help, can you look it over? The mechanics did that. They, their repair estimates were anywhere from $25 to $250 of what was wrong with his car. And so he was pretty discouraged because it seemed like he was being taken for a ride by almost all of them. Until he came into the garage of Cecil Baton. Went into Baton's garage, he looked under the hood, said you've got a couple wires that are loose, tighten them up, said you're good to go. What do I owe you? Nothing. Why nothing? <laughs> he said, well I just became a Christian and I thought I should help other people. I'm just a mechanic, I can't do anything else, so there you go. It's because of Christ. And that became the article in the Toronto newspaper that weekend. I found an honest mechanic. <laughs> His name was mentioned. Next week, the follow-up to the story, Cecil called the newspaper to ask them to call off the customers. The lines were so long to get into a shop, he couldn't take care of them. Two civic clubs had asked him to speak, and he hated to speak in front of people. And a publishing house asked him if he was interested in a book deal. <laughs> and I couldn't help but think, there were probably many splendid sermons preached that weekend in Toronto. But Cecil Baton's sermon by his act of Christian goodness and kindness 
had done more to adorn the gospel than the best preacher with the best sermon in the best church in town. And that's a spiritual sacrifice. And God is well pleased. Let's pray. Help us, Father, as we worship you today to offer up to you the spiritual sacrifices that please you, that honor you, that reflect you, so that the world might know that you live and that you are redeeming and forgiving and healing and restoring broken people by your amazing love and the sacrifice of your son, in whose name we pray, amen.